So I have a question for you. Um, have you ever walked through a chapter in your life that you didn't understand? In fact, if it were God who were authoring, or if it were you who were writing the story of your life rather than God, you would have omitted that chapter altogether? Uh, maybe it's the, uh, the, deeply, um, the deeply exhausting chapter that's billowing with one trial after the next. Or maybe it's the fearful chapter that's, that's, that's saturated with uncertainties and anxieties. Or maybe it's the, uh, the sorrowful chapter that's filled with, with one heartbreak, with one disappointment, with one setback after the other. We may not always understand, let me rephrase that. We will not always understand the chapter that we are walking through. But God has never commanded us to understand everything that we are going through. He simply commanded us to trust the author of our lives. Reggie, if you would pull up Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 6. And it reads that, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Notice it doesn't say, understand the Lord. Trust in the Lord, not understand the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. This promise to us is so liberating because it gives us permission to abandon the great mysteries of the chapter. Why hasn't this happened? When will this happen? Why wasn't my prayer answered? When will it turn out okay? And my prayer for you today is that you hear the Holy Spirit whisper to your heart, shh, relax, abandon the great mysteries of the chapter, and trust me. And the title of this morning's sermon is Take Off Your Grave Clothes. It was going to be entitled, Roll Away the, 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 the Stone in Front of the Grave, but, but that's, that's an action step that we're taking today. We're, we're rolling away the stone that's confining us into the grave. But the, the title of the sermon, it takes us to the very end of this chapter, and that's Remove the Grave Close. And I believe that some of you may have become so accustomed to living life with a sense of defeat, with a sense of despair, with a sense of discouragement, and you've been walking around wearing grave clothes. But my prayer is that tonight, today you will entrust uh, this chapter that you're walking through to Jesus Christ. I don't pretend to be something I'm not. I'm not going to stand up here today and say that I can help you fix your problems. But uh, my commission by the Holy Spirit through His Word is to help you bring your problems to the one who brings beauty out of ashes. And this is Jesus Christ. Uh, my prayer for you is that today, by the end of the service, whatever sorrow, whatever disappointment, whatever setback, whatever you have been struggling to entrust into the Lord, what, whatever addiction, what, whatever despair that you've been struggling with, that you will bring it right here as a step of faith and lay it before the Lord and say, Lord, I surrender to you my understanding and I trust your heart. I trust your master plan. I trust your resurrection power. And I believe that you are going to make all things new in my life. If you would open your Bible with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. I had every intention of of teaching through Hebrews chapter 10 today, 
but I've, I've, I've learned to recognize that, that, that whisper of the, of, the, of the Holy Spirit leading me in another direction. I've learned to recognize the whisper of the Holy Spirit by ignoring it so many times. And then I get halfway through a sermon that isn't connecting with anybody. And I'll say, okay, Lord, I remember. I'll remember that whisper next time. So here we are in John chapter 11. And I believe that that God uh, has this in store specifically for you. He has something special for you. And I know that some of you, there's no doubt in my mind, because I feel so directed by the Holy Spirit to John chapter 11, that some of you have just been living life in grave close. You've forgotten all about hope. You've forgotten all about encouragement. You've forgotten all about the joy of the Lord, which is your strength. When was the last time that you had joy just pouring out of your countenance? When was the last time that you've had energy that was not your energy, but that was Christ that was so powerfully at work within you? You know, in 1968, Martin Seligman He was a a psychologist, and he conducted a study in Cornell University on uh, clinical depression in humans. But he conducted this study through, of all things, dogs. And uh, he he developed a theory called learned helplessness, or basically hopelessness. And with these dogs, he had three groups of dogs. Now, there's two phases, phase one and phase two of these studies. Each phase, both phases, involved um, all three groupings of dogs. So the first phase of the study... Uh, what he did was he put these dogs in a box apparatus that they couldn't jump out of. And um, he wired them in harnesses. This is group one dogs. And these dogs had a lever. So then he began electrical shocks, and it was really painful for the dogs. And group one dogs, they, uh, they um, actually, the first grouping of dogs, they were put in the box apparatus. There were no electrical shocks, and then the dogs just jumped out. No big deal. That was that. So the second grouping of dogs, um, they had a lever, and their lever could actually stop the pain. It could turn the shocks off. And so the second grouping of dogs were actually also wired in conjunction with the third grouping of dogs. But the third grouping of dogs didn't have a lever that could could stop the electrical shocks. So they would begin the shocks. The second group of lever would would stop the shocks, and, and, and then the shocks would begin. They'd stop the shocks by pushing the lever again. Again, the shocks would start. They'd stop the shocks by pushing the lever again. And, um, and then that was that. So, the phase two of the study, they put the dogs, for the first grouping of dogs, into the box apparatus. The shocks start, and this time the, there, there's a low wall that the dogs can jump out of. The shocks begin. The first grouping of dogs, they simply quickly jumped out of the box apparatus and ran on with their day. No big deal. The second grouping of dogs that had a lever that stopped the pain, their shocks started. And they quickly jumped out of the box apparatus. No big deal. The third grouping of dogs who were wired in conjunction with group two dogs but didn't have a lever. So for the dogs in group three, it seemed that their pain was starting and stopping at random because it was their paired dog group two that was stopping the shock. So it didn't seem that they had any control over their pain. The shocks would begin and the dogs in group three, for the most part, simply laid down in the box apparatus with all of the shocks and whimpered. Because they learned helplessness. They learned that nothing they did had any bearing on the pain that they were experiencing. And the group three dogs uh, experienced symptoms similar to what we would describe as clinical depression. And Martin Seligman, uh, he defined three debilitating belief patterns that evolved from this thing called learned helplessness. The first, 
is that my pain is personal. In other words, it's my identity. This is who I am. This is, this is my identity. This is me. This, I am my pain. My pain is personal. Second, my pain is pervasive. I feel my pain here. Why jump, jump out of the box apparatus? Because I'm going to feel my pain there. My pain will touch every area of my life. It's pervasive in all aspects of my life. And the third debilitating belief pattern is that my pain is permanent. This is who I am. And this is my lot in life. This pain is going to touch every area of my life, and nothing can change it. This pain is the final authority in my life. So with that context, let's look at John chapter 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village Mary and her sister Martha were from. This is Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick. the, The same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord... Lazarus, the one that you love, is sick. So Mary and Martha were at point A. Their brother Lazarus, whom they loved, was sick and dying. And they needed to get to point B, where their brother Lazarus was well, and everything was back to normal, or better to normal. So they did what we would do when we need to get from point A to point B. They prayed. They took it to Jesus. And watch how Jesus responded, verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory. Let's move to verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he immediately got all of his things together and rushed as quickly as he could to their village. And he put everything by the, to the side and he immediately went and responded to their request. That's not what it says at all, is it? Look at what it says in verse 6. It says that he, verse 5, he loved her and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. What? Mary and Martha were at point A. They needed to get to point B. In order for them to get to point A to point B, Jesus needed to stop waiting and he needed to start running. But Jesus continued to wait and Lazarus's condition continued to deteriorate and then Lazarus died. Jesus finally arrives at the funeral, four days after Lazarus was dead. Four days after Lazarus was dead, Jesus arrived at the funeral. I mean, this is the the textbook definition for unfashionably late, isn't it? Four days. And he doesn't just stand at the back as as a sheepish bystander, hoping nobody will notice him because he's timid. No, he boldly walks in so that everybody can see him. And then Mary and Martha walk up to Jesus. And can you, can, can you sense the, the bewilderment in their mind? Can, can you see the, the, the pain and the hurt in their eyes? Can, can you sense the grief in their heart? Can, can you sense their anger when they look at Jesus and they said, if you had only been here, Lazarus would have still been alive. If you didn't wait, if you would have hurried, if you would have treated us with as much importance as, you, as, 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 as importance as you've treated everybody else, you're giving everybody else miracles. If you would have been here, Lazarus would still be alive. They are experiencing learned helplessness. They are experiencing pain. 
And they're in, 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 in a big danger of just wearing these grave clothes from here on out so that they believe that this pain is personal because God hasn't come through yet. This pain is pervasive. It's going to affect me here. It's going to affect me there. It's going to affect me now. It's going to affect me then. This pain is pervasive and going to affect every area of my life. And this pain is permanent. It hasn't changed yet. If it were going to change, it would have changed. But it hasn't changed, so it's not going to change. And they were looking in the very face of hope himself, Jesus Christ, who's the exact antithesis of helplessness or hopelessness. And so, Jesus asks them a question. The same question that he's asking us today. He says, do you believe? I know it seems like it's over. I know it seems like the chapter's said and done. I know I was silent. I know things haven't unfolded like you've expected them to unfold. But do you still believe? They said, yes, Lord. He said, okay. Well, then put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. If you still believe, roll away the stone. This is the same thing that God is asking all of us to do. How how long have you been praying? How how long have you been waiting? How how many times have you been disappointed? How many times have you been discouraged? How long have you sensed this pain? Is this pain becoming personal in your life? How pervasive is this pain? Is it just going with you like a cloud everywhere you go? Do you sense that this pain is permanent, the final authority in your life? Will you still believe? And so Jesus, in this text, offers the three keys that unlock the three locks of learned helplessness or hopelessness. And the first is his unfailing love. Will you believe in my unfailing love for you? Your pain is not personal. My unfailing love is personal. Your pain is not personal. Your pain does not define who you are or your identity. My love for you defines your identity. My love is personal. Your pain is not pervasive. Your pain is not what what is to, to infiltrate every other aspect and area of your life. My master plan, this is the second key. My master plan is pervasive, touching every area of your life. Your pain is not destined to wilt every moment, every area of your life. But my master plan touches and affects, restores, redeems, makes new, and brings me glory out of every aspect of your life. My master plan. And then my resurrection power is the final authority in your life. Not not your pain. Your pain is not permanent. Your pain is not the final authority. But my resurrection power is the final say-so in your life. And these are the three keys that, 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 that unlock the door to hopelessness and despair. And these are the three things that Jesus is asking us to trust in him today in relation to our pain. I know you've been praying. I know your heart's been heavy. I know you've experienced despair. I know that life is unfolding in a way that you wouldn't have written it. But will you still trust that he loves you? Will you still trust that his master plan is at work bringing great glory to Christ and deep joy to your heart? Will you believe that the resurrection power of Jesus Christ can make all things new? So let's pray and then unpack these these three decisions that you're going to be asked 
to, 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 to grab hold of today. Again, I'm not here to fix everything in your life, but I'm here to help you take your sorrows, your setbacks, your struggles, your disappointments to the one who can make all things new. And in just a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to take your, your greatest sorrow, your greatest struggle, your biggest disappointment, your greatest fear right here to the altar is a step of faith that you're rolling away the stone. It's an action step where you're stepping out of the boat. It's a step of faith where you're giving the command, roll away the stone, and you're going to walk forward, and you're going to kneel, and you're going to say, God, I still believe that you love me, and that's my identity. I still believe that your, your master plan is at work touching every area of my life. And I believe that the resurrection power of Jesus Christ will bring a beautiful testimony out of this heartbreak that I have been enduring. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would just draw the hearts of your people to trust you. Not to understand the chapter that they're walking through, but to trust in your unconditional love, your unstoppable plan, and your unfathomable resurrection power that makes all things new. Amen. John chapter 11. We read clearly that verse 5 says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary. He loved them. And yet he allowed them to go through a painful chapter. When Jesus arrived again, unfashionably late, four days after Lazarus died at the funeral, watch what we read, starting in verse 33. Let's back up to verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33. Watch this. When Jesus saw her weeping... And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Did you see that? And he said, where have you laid him? And she said, come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35. Do you know that this is the shortest verse in all of Scripture? You know that the Apostle Paul didn't write it because his verses tend to go on really long. This is the shortest verse in all of Scripture. It comes comprised of two words. Jesus wept. Simple verse, isn't it? Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. 35. Anytime that scripture is extraordinarily simple, you can be certain God is trying to be very clear. Jesus wept. But it wasn't just a few tears like trickling down or his eyes just, just didn't get a little moist where he just might say, give me a tissue kind of thing. No, he's demonstratively grieving. Look at verse 37 or 36. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? He's demonstratively, visibly grieving. Why was he weeping? Was he weeping over Lazarus because Lazarus died? You can be certain he was not weeping over Lazarus. We're going to see in a moment Jesus had a plan. He intentionally waited for Lazarus to die. Mary and Martha's plan was for Jesus to come quickly and heal Lazarus of a sickness. Jesus' plan was to wait, let Lazarus die, and heal Lazarus of death and to bring him back from the dead. Who had the greater plan? No doubt Jesus did. And any time that, that your plan is inconsistent with God's plan, no, God has the greater plan because he wants greater glory in your life than you would have ever imagined. No, Jesus isn't weeping for Lazarus. He has a plan to bring Lazarus back from the dead. We'll make that point in a moment. Jesus is weeping because he saw the pain 
in the heart of Mary and Martha. So we see Jesus wept. He demonstratively grieved. Reggie, could we bring up Psalm 56, 8? Jesus demonstratively grieved. He wept. Watch this. Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not written in thy book? This is an incredible passage. It says that you, you observed my, my wanderings, those seasons of my life that seem like a desert. And then when you see me cry, you, you take my tears, God, and you put my tears into a bottle. And, and, and you have a scroll and you, and you record my tears in a scroll. Did you know that any tear that you have ever shed, God has put it in a bottle? You've heard of car collectors. You've heard of, heard of stamp collectors. You want to know what God is? He's a tear collector. He t- collects your tears. Why? Because they're precious to him. And as we see in John chapter 11, Jesus loves you so much that he matches your tear, tear for tear. Even though he knows your pain is going to have a beautiful conclusion, nevertheless, he loves you so much that when you hurt, he hurts. And he matches your tear, tear for tear. Whether it's a literal bottle or a metaphorical bottle, this much is certain. Not only does he have the hairs on your head numbered, as Jesus said, he has numbered every single tear that has ever scrolled down your cheek. That's how present, that's how involved, that's how much he loves you. Roll back time into the, into the, the, the second grade when, when you rode your bike and, 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 you, and you fell over on your bike and you, and you scraped your chin and your tears started flowing. And guess what? Jesus knew it was going to be okay, but he matched your tears, tear for tear, and he recorded them. He kept record of every single one of them. In the sixth grade, if the kids uh, hurt your feelings, they made fun of you, they embarrassed you, you, you sucked it up, nobody knew it bothered you, and you walked home and you went into your room and you shut your door and you laid on your bed and you cried your eyes out. Guess what? God was with you, and he matched your tears, tear for tear. They were precious to him. He knew it would be okay. He nevertheless descended to match your tears. And when your family member died of that horrible disease and your tears fell and you thought the pain would never end, God was there and he collected your tears. When the spouse walked out on you and you thought your whole life fell apart, God was with you and he matched your tears, tear for tear, knowing that he would make all things new and make all things work together for the good. He nevertheless collected each and every tear. And one day you'll get to heaven and God will hold up a bottle and he'll say, I was with you every step. These are your tears. I matched them with my own and I collected every one that you had. This is how much he loves you. I just want to quickly walk with you through Psalm chapter 139. Just flip to the very middle of your Bible. You'll usually land in the Psalms when you just go to the very middle of your Bible. Sometimes you have to try it a couple of times. But Psalm chapter 139, just go to the middle of your Bible. And I just want to walk through this Psalm with you as we're talking about the fact that God loves you. Because here's the thing. I want you to walk with faith. I want you to walk with the joy of the Lord. I want you to be bold. I want you to have faith in Christ, that all things are going to work together for the good. I want you to celebrate God, not after all things work together, but before all things work together, so that Christ can get a testimony in your faith. But here's the thing, your beliefs determine your behavior. 
And the first key to unlock a wound, to heal a wounded heart and unlock a hopeless heart, the first key is to believe that God loves you. He still loves you. In fact, say these words, these three words, God loves me, say them. How many times have you heard those three words, God loves me? But don't they just stay up in our mind? And my prayer for you is that they make this incredibly long journey from your mind into your heart so that it takes root and explodes with the harvest of hope. God loves me. God still loves me. God will always love me. And God loves me not because of me. God loves me because God is God and God is love. And I can never change God. I change on a daily basis. Sometimes I'm lovable, guys, as a testimony. Sometimes I'm lovable. Sometimes I am unlovable. God loves me just the same because his love for me is not based on me. If it were, then God's love would fluctuate. God's love is based upon the sheer character of who he is. God is love and God is unchanging. God loves you so much and that love is unchanging. Let's just look at some characteristics of this incredible love. Five characteristics of God's love in Psalm 139. The first characteristic of God's love that we're going to see from the first few verses is this. God's love for you God's love for you is so intimate. It is so intimate. It is so tender. The psalmist says, you've searched me, Lord. You've known me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Watch this. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. He knows you. He knows you intimately. He doesn't just know what you say. He knows what you say before you say it. He knows you. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. He loves you intimately. In other words, he's infatuated with you. He doesn't just hear your words. He knows what you say before you say them. This is an intimate love. He doesn't just know how many hairs are on your head at all times, as the scriptures say. He has them numbered. So when hair number uh, 123 falls out, he knows it was hair number 123. He has them numbered always at all times. He knows you. He loves you intimately. Not only does he have your hair numbered, he has the atoms in your body that outnumber the grains of sand on the beaches and all the world and the stars and all of the cosmos. That num- the atoms in your body outnumber the sands and the stars combined, and he knows every single atom. His love for you is personal. It is deep. He is infatuated. He is focused on you. Verse 7 and 8 also tell us that this love, this intimate love, it's constant. It's unchanging. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are with me. If I make my beds in the depths, You are there. It's constant. It's unchanging. Again, because he doesn't love you based upon who you are or what you've done, but because of who he is. I remember when I was in high school uh, in football, one of the things that I did was punt return. That's the guy who, like, catches the ball when they punt, and then you try to run it back. Um, There was one time I caught the ball, and, like, I made one guy miss me, and then I made another guy miss me, and then I broke away, and I outran some others, and I almost ran it back for a touchdown. And the stands were, like, cheering. My mom and dad were in the stands. You want to know what? They were proud of me. There was another game where 
they punted, and I, and I was catching the ball, but it was like inside the 10-yard line, meaning their touchdown was right behind me. You're never supposed to catch a punt when you're in that area, but I was feeling kind of cocky, and I thought I can just run any ball back, and so I, I thought I would go in and just catch it, and I hear my sideline screaming, don't catch it, don't catch it, but I caught it, and I was going to just try to uh, outrun everybody like I did that one time, and this one guy hit me, and then this other guy hit me, and the ball went straight up in the air, and the team recovered the fumble. I was also on defense, but I was so dazed from being hit so hard that I didn't come on back out onto the field for, for defense on the very next play, so my team got a penalty, and guess what? That cost our team the game. My parents weren't very proud of me at that moment, but guess what? Did they love me any more because of my amazing performance on the field? Of course not. Did they love me any less because of my uh, uh, shameful performance on the field? Of course not. It's a constant love. And this is the love of God times infinity. God loves you on your best day. God loves you on your worst day. We see in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his love in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Not after we won that Boy Scouts patch, Christ died for us. Or after we got ease on citizenship all the way down our report card, Christ died for us. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we were at our best, but when we were at our worst. Christ loves us so much that he died for us. Not only is his love infinite, and not only is his love constant, but his love is present. We read the psalmist say, If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me. If I say, surely darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. You, you, you want to know what this means? God is with you. I mean, when your heart is broken, God is with you. When you're trying to figure out how, how, how to make the money stretch to the end of the month, God is with you. When everybody has walked out on you or disappointed in you or, or, or is not expressing love to you, God is with you. God is with you now. But not only this, not only is God's love intimate and constant and ever-present, but God's love for you is radiant. This means that he's celebrating you. He doesn't love you because he has to love you. He loves you because he likes you. He doesn't love you because he's God and that's his job. He loves you because there's something in his heart that gives him so much joy when he thinks of you. We read in verse 13, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. And then finally, the final characteristic of God's love that we'll look at in verse 17 is that God's love for you is infinite. It's limitless. The metaphor that God gives us for his love is this. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love towards those who fear him. And if, if, if you do a little study in astronomy, you'll see that the universe is really an overkill. <laughs> it's ridiculously big. I mean, when you start talking about light years and cosmos and galaxies and billions of galaxies and, and a universe that we now know is expanding faster than the speed of light, and then many physicists are now theorizing that this universe is this mind-boggling large and expanding faster than the speed of light, and there is probably just 
one of an, any infinite number of trillions and trillions and trillions of other universes. Why are the cosmos so big? As a metaphor for his love for you and me. As high as the heavens are above the earth, scriptures say, so great is his love for those who fear him. This means you can never reach the edge of God's love. And you can't wrap your mind around it, but your heart can grasp it, and we can rest in it securely. God loves you. God still loves you. And there's nothing you can ever do to change this fact. And God is with you. So the first key of learned helplessness is the love of God, the unfailing, unconditional, unfathomable love of God. He loves you. God loves you. Jesus loves you. He rejoices in you. The second characteristic of, of hope that unlocks this prison door of, of, of our grave so that we can walk out and remove the grave clothes is the unstoppable master plan of God for your life. We really underestimate God's master plan for our life. We think it's so fragile, like this delicate wick that's about to be snuffed out on a candle. No, no, no. God's master plan for your life is not a delicate glow, last glow on a candle's ember. God's master plan for your life is a raging wildfire. God's master plan for your life is not this delicate rose petal that we can easily stomp on. God's master plan for your life is a boulder pounding down the side of a mountain. It is unstoppable. We read in verse 4 that Jesus intentionally waited for Lazarus to die. And we read that he intentionally waited for him to die because he had a master plan that he was going to go and he was going to raise him back from the grave. That was the plan of God. And God's plan always outweighs our plan. But again, God's plan is not for under, to understand his plan. It's to trust him and trust that it will result in something that's so praiseworthy. And it will satisfy the deepest places of our heart and rejoice our heart. And it will bring beauty out of ashes and testimony out of tragedy. Reggie, if you could bring up this next verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. And we read, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, like what you're going through right now. Look, look at how God describes it. It's a light, momentary affliction. It's an affliction. You say, yeah, I agree with you on that, but I don't think it's light, and I don't feel like it's momentary. But this is what God says. Your affliction is light, and it's but for a moment. It's light and momentary. But these, this affliction is worth for us far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. In other words, your light and momentary affliction is achieving for you an eternal weighty glory. Now, he's not saying, he's not saying that, that your affliction is light and momentary, because it's not light and momentary, is it? God is not making light of it. But what he's saying is that it is achieving for you something that in comparison is eternal and glorifying to God. And it 
far outweighs the light and momentary afflictions. So, no, it, it's, it, it's not light and momentary. It's painful, and it's heart-sickening. But what we tend to do is to try to make ourselves feel better. We'll compare our sufferings to other people's sufferings, don't we? We say, well, somebody else always has it worse. Isn't that what we say? Have you heard somebody say that? Somebody else always has it worse. Gosh, you know, I'm just really struggling. Yeah, well, there's, you know, starving kids all over the world. Somebody else always has it worse. Yeah, I guess I should feel better about myself. But one, isn't it kind of unchristlike to feel better about your situation because somebody else has it worse off? I mean, isn't there something uncompassionate about that? Isn't there something prideful about that? And secondly, how are you going to feel if you're the one who everybody else is feeling better about their lives about because they're comparing their life to you? That would make you feel pretty bad. People have done that to me. They're like, well, sometimes I think I've got it bad, and I just look at Shane Gray, and I think, well, it's not that bad. And I think, well, how do you think that makes me feel? <laughs> the only thing that we are to compare our sufferings to are what the sufferings are achieving for us. What are the sufferings, sufferings achieving for us? The sufferings are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So as most of you know, I had surgery about 10 days ago and on my shoulder, and uh, th things are going great, and thank you so much for your prayers. It's actually going much better than I anticipated. Because anybody else who's ever had rotator cuff surgery, nobody's been encouraging. They've all been like, oh yeah, that's the worst. I'm like, anything encouraging in there you'd like to share with me? Uh, <laughs> But I know a lot of people have been praying for me, and so I very much appreciate that. But you ever, you ever ask yourself, it's like, why, why do we allow the doctors to inflict this kind of pain upon us? Well, it's because this, this, this suffering, we, we compare the suffering to what it's going to achieve for us, and what is it going to achieve for us in eternal glory. In other words, we can never wear a crown of gold unless we follow Christ and wear a crown of thorns. We can never experience the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ unless we pick up our cross and follow him. And this is the master plan of God. He's at work bringing beauty out of ashes. Not in spite of your affliction, but specifically because of it. In 1991, Time, 1990, Time magazine uh, wrote an article about um, a guy who sold a first copy of the Declaration of Independence for $1.2 million at auction. Pretty cool, right? But the coolest thing about this story was not the price of the sell of, of the Declaration of, the first copy of the Declaration of Independence. The coolest thing about this story was the surprising location of its discovery. He was at a flea market, and he bought this, um, this, this painting for just a few bucks, I think $4. He bought the painting not because he liked the painting. He described it as a dismal, dreary country scene. A cheap painting of a dismal, dreary country scene. That's how he described the painting. And he bought it only because of the frame. He, he wanted the frame. So when he got the painting home, he began looking at it, and he, began, and he peeled back the canvas, and he found hidden behind that dismal, dreary scene a piece of paper folded neatly and tightly into the size of an envelope, and it was the treasure, the first copy of the Declaration of Independence that he sold at auction for $1.2 million. And so it is in our lives. I mean, we just see the dismal, dreary scenes of our circumstances, but there is a treasure hidden behind the scenes worth far more than the first copy of the Declaration of Independence. It is the sovereign hand of God, the master plan of God hiding behind the scenes. And this master plan of God will blend into the reality of our lives. Sometimes the master plan of God blends suddenly. Sometimes it blends gradually. But when we trust God, it will blend. And we will praise God for his glory 
that makes all things new. And this leads us to the third and final key uh, to unlock our, our weary hearts and to take off the grave clothes and to live with hope and to bring our trials to the only one who can do something about it, and that's God. And this is to trust in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that makes all things new. We read in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, Jesus said, Behold, I love this passage. I think this passage is so inspiring. It's so fresh. It's so new. Revelation 21.5, Jesus said, Behold, I am making all things new. Not some things. All things new. We hear these two words, all things, again in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. God works all things, not some things, all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We hear a variation of these two words, all things, again in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He makes everything, everything, all things. He makes everything beautiful in its time. Is everything beautiful? No. A lump of coal is not beautiful, but in its time, God makes it beautiful. It's a diamond. Is everything beautiful? No. A, a caterpillar is not beautiful, but in its time, God makes it a butterfly. Is your pain, is your sorrow, is your setback, is your disappointment beautiful? Perhaps not. But in its time, when God touches it with his resurrection power, he makes it beautiful. He works it together for the good. He makes it new through his resurrection power. Have you ever seen God's resurrection power firsthand? Make something new? Time and time again, I've been with families around the casket of a loved one who passed away. And the tears streamed and their shoulders convulsed and they hugged and they comforted one another but through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ they grieved but they didn't grieve as those without hope it was not goodbye it was only until then as they held on to the promise of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15 when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your victory oh death where is your sting and in the midst of their tragedy, their hearts began growing newer and newer and newer through faith and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. More times than I could express, I have seen couples whose marriages were shipwrecked by infidelity, whose hearts were just um, glazed over with ice, who were just staring icy glares at one another. There was no hope for their marriages to ever be thawed and to ever experience intimacy again except through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ and through faith in the power of Christ intimacy was restored and their marriage became more beautiful than it ever was before and this is what God promises his resurrection power will do in our life we read about it in Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26 I will give you a new heart says the Lord and I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove from you the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. All things grow increasingly newer. I've had friends, even family members, inches, inches, centimeters from losing their lives because of addiction. Many friends who did lose their lives from addiction and family members who were inches, centimeters from losing their life from addiction. And there was, there was 
dashed hope after dashed hope after dashed hope. And that addiction just seems so much stronger than our prayers. And yet we've witnessed deliverance and we've witnessed freedom when we thought that circumstantially and humanly speaking, hope was gone. This is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And we read about it in Psalm 40. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And by the way, when people are freed through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, it creates a wildfire of freedom. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And many will see and put their trust in God. And we wake up of a morning and we read the newspaper and it seems like God is out of control. Oh, he is in control. He is sovereign. But sometimes he's hiding behind the scenes. But his master plan will blend gradually. But what some should fear more is when his master plan blends suddenly, when he comes again. But right now we read about earthquakes and hurricanes and tsunamis that are growing with increasing destruction. But one day all of creation will be made new when Christ returns. And we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, that for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. But one day, the resurrection power will establish a new creation. For Jesus says, for behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and no more shall be heard the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And all things will grow exponentially newer through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And we've witnessed just in this past election cycle that it seems that arrogance and pride will rule the day. But there's a day that when Christ returns and he establishes a new culture that once again peace and humility will reign. And we read in Isaiah that when that day comes, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra's den. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the snake's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Nothing, absolutely nothing, no pain that you've ever endured, no loss, no setback, no failure, nothing will escape the spreading light of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Everything, everything will be made new. And right now, when you entrust your biggest hurt, your biggest sorrow to Jesus Christ by trusting that he still loves you, by trusting that his master plan is currently at work behind the scenes, uh, bringing beauty out of the ashes and a testimony out of your tragedy through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that makes all things new. When you entrust that into the Lord, then God responds to that faith and he answers it mightily in a way that exceeds anything that you could dare to ask or imagine. So Jesus said to Mary and Martha, do you believe? I know you're hurt. I know you're mad at me, but do you still believe? And they said, yes, Lord, we believe. He said, okay, here's your action step. Roll away the stone. And they said, but Lord, he's been dead four days. 
And he said, do you believe? He said, yes, Lord. Okay, roll away the stone. Can you imagine how awkward this moment would have been if Jesus couldn't back up his promise? They rolled away the stone. You know, there's certain moments throughout Scripture that I would love to, to witness. You know, I'd love to see David killing Goliath. Of course, I'd love to witness the resurrection of Christ. Maybe not, because maybe I prefer embracing it by faith. But this is certainly a moment that I would love to see. I, I would love to see Lazarus come forth. I would, I would love to hear the gasps. I, I, would love to, I, I would love to lose my breath with them. Have, have you ever like been in a moment where you lost your breath and you gasped and you wanted to fall on your face and stand up and rejoice and you wanted to cry and you wanted to, to be silent and you wanted to worship and you wanted to shout all at the same time and you felt the goosebumps? This is a God moment. This is a holy moment. This is the moment that they were in. I would love to see Lazarus come forth and I would love to hear the gasps, but more importantly... Your pain-filled chapter, your setback, your sorrow, your disappointment, I can't wait to hear. And I hope I'm there to witness this moment when your faith turns into sight, and faith will turn into sight. The only thing that remains forever is love. We trade in faith for sight. We trade in hope for reality. Your faith will turn into sight. Your hope will turn into reality. This heartbreak will turn into the glory of God and your absolute deepest joy and highest praise so that you'll want to sh climb the highest mountaintop and shout to the world through the loudest megaphone, it's true, it's true, it's true. Jesus Christ does make all things new. He does work all things together for the good. It's true. It's true. Would you stand with me, please? If you would just bow your heads with me and uh, just raise your hand high if, if you would like to uh, just give some sorrow, give some setback to the Lord, give some disappointment, give some failure to the Lord. If that's you, I'd like to pray for you. Just, just raise your hand. Okay, Father, you see these hands and I, I, I can't fix them. I, I, I can't give them three steps to fix something this deep, this disappointing, this sorrowful. That, that, that's not my role, but you can. And all I can do, Lord, is help them bring it to you because you're the one who can fix it. Lord, you're the one who can make all things new. You're the one who can bring beauty out of ashes. And so, Lord, I just pray in Jesus' name that you would be glorified in every hurt, every heartache, every sorrow that's, rest, that's represented. Be glorified. Your greatest glory, their deepest joy, their highest praise, be glorified. We thank you in advance. Right now, sometimes we want to praise after. That's not faith. Let's praise before. Put your hands together right now and just praise Jesus. And now, I just, I want to ask you to roll away the stone and walk forward and kneel and just say, Lord, I entrust this to you. Bring beauty out of ashes. I entrust this to you. Make all things new. I believe that you love me. That's my reality. I believe that your master plan is at work, bringing about glory, 
I, I believe that your resurrection power can redeem my past, can forgive my sins, can make all things new. You guys can come on forward and just kneel down. You're rolling away the stone. Just go before the Lord.